I'm so thankful that God brought a young man into my life personally and also my family's life. But he brought this young man into really all of our lives when God sent Creighton Coleman to come and study for his master's in apologetics at Biola. We got some Biola students here today. It's so nice to have you worshiping God with us today, and we welcome you. But Creighton, I just felt instantly connected to your heart, and I like you. <laughs> I, I really do. I, I just think you're awesome. You, you've become a bit of a son to me, you know, um, maybe more like a grandpa to you. I don't know how you feel, but I'm, I'm thinking son. But I, I love your, your dedication and your focus and your determination. You, you're, you're going somewhere, and you're not letting anything really interfere with that, as far as I can see. And I would encourage you and exhort you strongly, keep on, keep on that path. Keep the blinders on and don't let anything detour you from that goal and that destiny that God has for you. Creighton will be finishing um, December 20th, I believe. He graduates and God will move him on. We don't know yet where. He's interviewing at some places and he has some resumes out. And So I would ask you to pray about that next door that God has for Creighton. But I thought, we just have to hear him one more time. I just, I remember the last time he spoke, it was so powerful and so pertinent. And so I said, Creighton, would you just come and preach the word to us one more time? Don't you love Creighton Coleman, everybody? So I was telling the uh, first service crowd, um, who is loud, you know, so you've got a lot to live up to. Uh, I think you need to be loud also. Uh, I was telling them uh, how glad I am uh, to be involved in a community of Christians who, uh, even in times where we don't necessarily understand what's happening, uh, even in times where we don't necessarily see God, uh, I see week after week us uh, pursuing him, us going after him. And, you know, personally, uh, I shared that I've been in a similar place, uh, you know, where I haven't, haven't felt God in the same sense that I have in the past. Uh, but I know, uh, and I know that this church knows that God is faithful. Uh, no matter where we are, God is with us. Uh, even when we don't understand, God has a complete understanding and a plan for our lives. Uh, he works out what we don't know, what seems bad at the time, for good in the end, and I, I appreciate the, the huge amount of faith that I see in this church, and uh, I'm glad to be here. Uh, when Pastor Steve asked me to preach, I, I started thinking about what I should speak on, and uh, not being bound by any series or really any sound moral principles, the opportunity and it seemed endless. I could choose anything. Uh, but uh, after a lot of thought and prayer, I narrowed the topic areas down to those in the Bible. Uh, <laughs> I figured it wouldn't be appreciated if I uh, preached out of another book, but it was a thought. Uh, eventually, I determined to share what's been an area of research for me lately. I hope that I can give some sort of insight, uh, really just other people's insights that I've uh, read, and uh, into a very difficult topic. Uh, so if you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles to Deuteronomy 20, we'll start at verse 10. Uh, Deuteronomy is, you know, it's in the Old Testament. It gives us a lot of history and law for the people 
of Israel. So there's all, all kinds of guidelines for things like sacrifice and warfare even. And uh, what, what we're reading about now is guidelines for how Israel is supposed to uh, attack another city. So, so exciting day today. We're going to read about war and killing people. Uh, so you have that to look forward to. We'll start at verse 10. Uh, when you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. I can do you one better, forced labor, but I think we'll get more exciting. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword or kill them. But the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as plunder for yourselves. And you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here. So here's where it gets important. Here's where we're going to focus in. Uh, verse 16. But in the cities of uh, these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. But you shall devote them to complete destruction. That's a key phrase, uh, devote to destruction. It's the title of the sermon. Uh, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded. But they may not teach you, uh, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, as we approach what seems to be a difficult topic for us to understand, God, I pray that you would humble each and every one of us so we can come to you with open hearts and minds asking what it is you want us to learn from this, what it is you're revealing to us. God, I pray that you'd be with us today. God, that you might bless our time. Amen. So there's some necessary context. Uh, it talks about the inheritance that God's giving to Israel. Uh, it seems like... Uh, the, the period we're in is Israel has just uh, relatively recently less left Egypt, and they're moving into the promised land, uh, Canaan, the land around modern-day Israel, a uh, long time ago, however. And at that time, there were different peoples in the land. So God was telling Israel how they were to deal with those people. So uh, this, this, this can be tough to swallow. Uh, this can be a tough thing to wrap your head around. Uh, I want you to consider that passages such as these have fallen under attack uh, from multiple angles, uh, one of which is from a group called uh, the New Atheists. And I think we have an image uh, that's pretty good. It's four men, uh, a magazine article uh, called them the four horsemen of the apocalypse, in insofar as they were said to be the end of Christianity, uh, the end of religion. So, so from top going around, we have uh, Sam Harris, uh, Daniel Dennett, and then the late Christopher Hitchens, who actually looks nothing like that because he, I think they just like copy and pasted a picture of Uncle Fester. Uh, he, he had hair and everything. I, I don't know why they did that. And then uh, Richard Dawkins. So those are the four men uh, who kind of go bump in the night, raise doubt within us so that we are uh, scared, uh, so that we think that we don't have an explanation for God. Uh, their strategy has changed, however. Uh, they're called the New Atheists because they're different. Uh, rather than the atheists of old who simply disagreed and thought God did not exist, uh, these men seek to actively 
in religion. Uh, one man, Christopher Hitchens, the man at the bottom of the picture, his book is titled God is Not Great. The subtitle is Why Religion Poisons Everything. And that is their core idea, that religion is at the core of every problem our world sees today. I disagree. Now, uh, with passages such as these, uh, these men have deemed God nothing more than a, a genocidal monster, a genocide being uh, you know, a war against a certain people where you seek to exterminate that people, and they believe that God made a command for genocide to the Israelites. Uh, it's not necessarily the case, but, but we still have to deal with this because this is an affront to God's goodness. These men would have us believe that if it is the case that God does exist, he's not good. That they, they would have us believe that the God of the Bible is actually a moral monster. And since that's the guy who's guiding all of our moral decisions, I think we should have something to say. Many Christians have attempted to deal with passages such as these, and they often start from the position of, we can't understand God, and I agree. We can't understand everything about God. That's certainly true. Uh, however, uh, I disagree with the latter part of the statement, that we need not trouble our minds on passages such as these. Rather, I believe it's the opposite. Uh, because we can't understand, uh, all Christians would do well to trouble on passages such as these so that we can begin to transform our minds, so that we can begin to renew our minds with understanding. Now, just because we can't understand everything about God, it does not necessarily follow that we can't understand anything about God. Uh, so I'd like to look a little bit further today. We'll look at a couple different strategies people use to uh, get rid of these texts or deal with these texts, and then see if we can find the gospel uh, in this. Uh, the first area... The people, the first strategy people use is they'll, they'll try to soften the command. Uh, they'll try to make it something that it's not. Uh, many hold that the text, uh, these many texts in the Old Testament, are a form of hyperbole or an intentional exaggeration. Much, uh, many, many different ancient Near Eastern war texts, the ancient Near East just being uh, the greater area, uh, Middle East, uh, modern day Middle East. Uh, around Israel in, in the ancient world, including places like Egypt. A lot of the war texts uh, from various countries included great exaggerations to try and make their armies look like the most honorable and strongest armies in the region. Uh, the idea is very similar to me saying uh, that the Kansas City Chiefs are going to kill the Broncos tonight, uh, which, I, which I mean in a very literal sense, but... Uh, <laughs> but, but when I say that, I, I do not necessarily mean the football players from Kansas City are going to murder a series of football players from Denver. I, that's not what the statement entails. Uh, there's a literary device in there. Now, now it is the case that Peyton Manning is old and feeble and will likely break uh, at the hands of Kansas City's defensive line, but, but that'll happen. Uh, now, I'm not, I'm not open. I made the mistake of saying something too quickly in the first verse, but I, I'm not open to being wrong about the Chiefs game tonight, but I am... I am <laughs> I am open to, uh, to being wrong about, about these texts. Uh, I'm open to this being hyperbole. However, I don't think I'm wrong right now. Uh, there are a lot of people much smarter than me who have done a lot more work than I have. Uh, so, so perhaps there's some insight that I have not gathered. However, uh, I think there are far too many texts in the Old Testament that are far too clear for this to be just an exaggeration. Consider 1 Samuel 15.3. 
says, now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction. This, this phrase, devote to destruction, I'll go ahead and explain here. It, it's uh, reappearing, and the Hebrew word for this is harem, or, uh, or I'll refer to it as the ban also. It's uh, an incredibly specific type of warfare, uh, and it's, it, it was used throughout the ancient Near East. And it's, it's the idea that God had commanded Israel, or whatever country was using this type of warfare, to attack another and completely destroy them in recognition that the battle was not theirs, that the battle that was happening was actually a much higher form of divine warfare that was taking place on the earth. So uh, when Israel used this, uh, Yahweh was saying, the Yahweh being the God of Israel, was saying, this is not your battle. Uh, this is my battle, and Israel was recognizing that. Uh, there'll be more explanation uh, in a bit. But uh, the verse goes on, and devote to destruction all they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And many times we'll gloss over verses like this. We'll see things like child and infant and think, well, that's not what they can mean. But uh, quite literally, I mean small humans. Uh, I mean the children that go to school uh, every day of the week. Those are the types of people that God, our God, is commanding Israel to include in this killing. Now, as an aside, uh, I, think, I think it should be noted what's happening in this verse. Uh, Amalek, who God is telling Israel to attack, is, uh, is the same Amalekites who, who attacked Israel as they came out of Egypt, who's a thorn in the side of Israel for many, many years. And they didn't do this in, in uh, just a common warfare type manner. Rather, they attacked Israel at perhaps their weakest point, picking off the weak, those who straggled behind and uh, verse 2 actually says just before this that uh, God says, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. So what we see here is God finding justice. Uh, this happens much later. You know, we don't see justice immediately. But eventually, later on, God does find his justice. No matter what happens, we can trust that God is going to see that justice is done. Oftentimes, it's not our job to do that. But I think our position, and what we can glean from passages such as this, is that we need to have trust in God that he's going to deal with situations that we see. You know, we live in a world with very, very much evil. Uh, and it's not our job to try and reconcile all of that. Rather, our trust needs to be in the Lord who is eternal and has a better conception of justice so that he might be able to do just that. Deuteronomy 2.34 goes on to say, And we captured all his cities at that time and devoted to destruction, harem or the ban, every city, men, women, and children. We left no survivors. Seems clear. Deuteronomy 3.6 says, And we devoted them to destruction, that same word, and we did to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, devoting to destruction every city, men, women, and children. Deuteronomy 7.2 says, When the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show them no mercy. These do not sound like hyperbolic war texts. This does not sound like chest beating so that Israel may make themselves out to be the strongest army in, in the region. Uh, rather, these texts sound very matter-of-fact, as in, we left no survivors. We killed everyone. This is just simply what we did. Now, are, are there any Rambo fans in the house? Uh, hands should be up because everyone's a Rambo fan. Uh, but 
Rambo doesn't use literary devices, right? Uh, Rambo's the type of guy, he just like has a gun, a knife, and some grenades, and when he tells you he's going to kill you, you aren't like, well, are you exaggerating, Rambo? Um, I, I think the question is, when are you going to do it? Uh, so I think much in the same way that Ram Rambo would not, he wouldn't, he wouldn't be exaggerating. I think that's the type of text uh, that we're dealing with. I think the same goes for Transformers, right? You don't see Optimus Prime exaggerating about something. When, when Optimus Prime says he's going to do something and flips up from his semi-state to his Optimus Prime, I'm going to end your life state, uh, you take it very seriously. It's not a question of what's being exa exaggerated and what's not being exaggerated. Uh, moreover, it seems like there is a very specific purpose in these killings that makes, makes it seem like they should be taken literally. In fact, uh, God says very clearly that he's killing all those in Canaan to punish the egregious sin there and to protect Israel from covenant perversion so that his covenant with them would not become polluted. Uh, rather than genocide where a people are targeted, we see uh, that it's more a form of capital punishment where people are being punished for their sins. Consider Deuteronomy 9.5, not because of your righteousness, God speaking to Israel, or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Uh, it, it seems incredibly clear that there's a purpose in having everyone killed. Uh, we know for a fact that uh, idolatry was incontrovertibly rampant throughout Canaan. They worshipped different gods. Uh, they, they often switched their gods. Um, but I, I want you to go ahead and strike from your mind this image of someone passively worshipping. Oftentimes it can be difficult to swallow the fact that people were killed for who they worshipped. Uh, because we have this image of someone very passively and uh, by themselves worshiping and being killed for that. However, that's not the case. That's not what the Bible reveals to us. Rather, the Bible reveals to us that worship is a life formational act. If you are worshiping something else, you begin to become that. Consider Jeremiah 2.5. It shows God commenting on Israel's own idolatry. He says, what wrong did your fathers find in me? He's commenting that the fathers of Israel had abandoned God, that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless. When people worship things that are not God, when they worship things that are impotent and worthless, they become that. Uh, we can see this very much in our world, and I think it's the core uh, of our Christian doctrine that when we worship Yahweh, we begin to show his attributes, and we begin to show his grace and mercy to others. So when we're worshiping things that are not, the risk is that we become them. And in Canaan, uh, these manifested themselves in incredibly grotesque ways. Uh, consider that the Canaanite religious practices entailed what was ceremonial prostitution, where both young men and women were forced to perform sexual acts to gain favor from their God. Uh, sexual perversion did not stop there. Uh, the Canaanite cult uh, actively endorsed such actions as bestiality and incest. And this was not just some uh, misguided action by the Canaanite people. Rather, this was directly advocated by the gods that were worshipped in Canaan. The Canaanite myths that we can read still today show these gods involved in practices such as bestiality and incest. And Canaan shows us that when we worship those things, we begin to show those same attributes. 
Now, if that's not shocking enough, perhaps child sacrifice uh, might get the job done. Leviticus 18.21 comments on the child sacrifice that happened there uh, to, to the god Molech. And how it worked was there was a, uh, a metal bull, B-U-L-L, uh, who stood holding, holding, a, holding a bull, B-O-W-L. Uh, there was a fire lit in the bull's belly, and children were put in the bull uh, and were just burned to death until they eventually shriveled up and fell inside of the idol. Now, uh, consider what it would be like for a child to grow up in this culture. If you make it out of your infanthood and aren't sacrificed, uh, then you have the possibility, the likelihood of being placed into a Canaanite temple to practice ritual prostitution all throughout your childhood. And then to top it all off, when you finish up those duties, you might have the option of marrying your sister or perhaps the house cat. It seems as if this is not a culture that values the lives of children. It's not a culture that values life in general. Rather than exaggerated war texts, the Bible shows clear commands that God desires to punish sin. God desires to see sin ended. The first question we have to ask with texts like these is what do they tell us about God? And I think it shows an incredibly clear image of God that is fiercely holy and uncompromisingly righteous. We do not serve a God who's willing to allow sin to exist. We do not serve a God who's willing to allow evil in our lives. We do not serve a God who allows sin into eternity. Rather, we serve a God who wants to see us move away from those things. We serve a God who wants to see those sins punished. In a world where they are not, they continue to exist. Consider the opposite. Consider a God who did not seek to remove sin. Consider a God who did not seek to punish sin. Could we say of that God that he was loving? Could we say of that God that he cared for us in the sense that a parent cares for the child? I don't think so. The second question we have to ask about these texts is, uh, what do they tell us about God's plan for redemption? It seems incredibly clear that no matter the costs, no matter the circumstances, God was not willing to see his covenant with Israel perverted. He had to preserve it just enough so that his son could come through that line and save all of humanity. In his actions here, what we see rather than an angry, uh, vengeful God, we see a God preserving his plan for redemption so that each and every one of us could find love and eternity with him. Our focus need not be on the judgment of God. We need to look to the love of God that's shown for us in these texts. When we don't do so, that's when we, that's when we find this God isolating himself, judging us from afar. But instead, the image that the Bible offers is a God that cares deeply for each and every one of us, that cares deeply for all those who have existed and will exist, and who has a deep desire to see them come back to him as we have strayed in our sin. Second strategy that we see uh, to deal with these texts is uh, many try to remove them. Uh, their uh, idea is that if these... Uh, the conclusion of the argument is that, uh, well, then the Bible can't be inerrant because God obviously didn't make these commands. 
Now, uh, someone told me that including premises in my sermon would be incredibly boring, and that might be true, but uh, they are here, so I just determined what's good for the goose is good for the gander, and took a note from my mother and said, you, we will do it, we will go over these, and each and every one of you will like it. Uh, so. so the argument against the inerrancy of Scripture that we have to answer is, uh, starts with premise one. Uh, premise one is that God is perfectly good. We agree with that. The Bible reveals a God who's incredibly good, good in, in every sense that we can't understand. Uh, the second premise is where it seems to fall off track. It says, the commands shown in these passages are abhorrent. Uh, the idea is that these commands are so bad that no good being could ever command this. Now, the third premise is the conclusion that, therefore, God could not have commanded these things. Because these commands are seemingly evil, a good God could, by definition, not command them. So we have to conclude that he did not make those commands. Now, our response to this is to deny number two. We have to deny the second premise and seek to show that God had a morally justifiable reason for commanding those things. And we'll, we'll go ahead and do that. But first, I'd like to comment on uh, the foundations for knowledge here. How is it that the skeptic, uh, a, a general term that I use for those disagreeing with the inerrancy of Scripture, uh, how is it that the skeptic can know that the commands shown here are evil? What's their foundation for knowledge? And it seems, and they'll say explicitly, that their foundation for knowledge is their own moral intuition. They can just know. Some philosophers have stated, I know, the, the point I know capital punishment is wrong is when the head hits the basket, right? That's the point. My own intuition show me that. So uh, it seems like this is where they fall off track. Because rather than uh, being an image of God, this seems to create God in our own image and bind him based on our own moral intuitions. More on this later. So, to deny the second premise, uh, we have to respond to several charges as to why the command is necessarily evil. Uh, the first of these is the possibility that there were some who were not guilty among those who were killed. The, the idea that God commanded for innocence to be killed. Now, uh, this, this charge seems to have little conception of God's foreknowledge. Uh, God's foreknowledge is just the idea that God has complete knowledge of all events in the future. Now, I believe that his foreknowledge includes knowledge of possible worlds or middle knowledge. So, for instance, uh, God knows if you were on a beach in Thailand, uh, you would build uh, a sandcastle. Now, that world may not come to pass that you are on a beach in Thailand, but God does have an understanding of what you would do in that possible world. So, if it is the case that God has complete foreknowledge and is completely good, then he would have known the outcome of a world in which he did not make this command. And he would have been uniquely able to judge whether or not the command was necessary. Now, we have some insight into this. Uh, in the book of Judges, you know, we see Israel fail in the holy war. We see Israel intermarrying with those in Canaan. And while Israel might have taken the land... Judges shows us that Canaan eventually took the culture. Uh, perhaps a climax is reached in Judges 19 when a woman is uh, raped to death by a mob outside of a home uh, in the same sense that uh, some might have been in Sodom and Gomorrah. And to top it all off, she's then cut into 12 pieces and mailed throughout the kingdom. Uh, this sin that was allowed in Israel 
was incredibly, incredibly perverse. It, uh, it spread and spread until eventually this same ban that God was inflicting on those in Canaan uh, was inflicted on the Israelites as well uh, at the hands of other, other empires. Now, we don't have a God who judges quickly. Uh, rather, we have a God who's patient. Consider the exchange between God and Abraham in Genesis 18. Now, prior to God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, there's a discussion between Abraham and God that offers some insight. Abraham humbly questions God's decision out of a concern for innocents who might die in the destruction there. He asked God if he would continue if there were 50 righteous people among those in Sodom and Gomorrah. So if there's 50 people who aren't involved in the sin there, would God spare the city? And God concludes that he would spare the city. Abraham then asked God to consider if 45 righteous men were there, and then 40, and then 30, and then 20, and then 10. Each time, God affirms that he would not include the number in his judgment of the cities. Finally, concluding that if there were even 10 righteous in those cities, he would spare the cities. This, this shows us something incredibly shocking about God's character. He would not kill innocents if they existed. We have a glimpse into discussions where he has explicitly stated he would not do that. So we can have trust in his character because it has been revealed to us that he would not take the lives of innocents for the sake of judging others. Rather, we see quite the opposite, that God would save the lives of those who deserve judgment if the righteous exist. And my prayer is that each and every one of us can be the righteous in this world. God is seeking to find those who are righteous. He's scanning the world, seeking to find those who wish to glorify him. And my prayer is that as Christians, we can be the salt and light of this world and show that righteousness to others. Now, there's a second argument uh, that children were included in the killings and that because of this, uh, God's action could not be bad. Now, I, my position is that quite literally, the, the text is clear that Israelites were to kill children that they encountered, uh, all the way from infants up to those who might have been morally culpable for their actions, and, and then they would have been killed because they were adults. Uh, so th this puts us in a seemingly awkward spot because we have to defend the killing of children. So th this was the topic of most of my research. This is where I focused most of my time this semester. And uh, to fully understand the mental state I was in, I want you to get just like the oddest image you can conjure up of me sitting in a basement. I know there's not basements here, but for the purpose of the image, I'm in a basement. Uh, and uh, you know, there's dirty dishes. I haven't showered in weeks. Um, and uh, there's, it's dark, and there's one light shining on me as I read intently about killing children, right? That, that's the image I want you to have. And then, and then to complete it, I will have you know that in the mornings I go and work at the elementary school here. Uh, <laughs> now, some days, some days it was a struggle. Some days it was difficult, and, you know, the, the kids were great that day, and I'm asking, God, how could you do this? While other days it was, you know, here I am, Lord, send me. Uh, <laughs> Might you give me the opportunity to take some of these children's lives? <laughs> now, uh, I'd like you to consider one case where we have uh, access, well, we don't actually have it, but consider a case where we have access to time travel, right? Uh, where we can get in a time machine and go back to around 1890, the year after Adolf Hitler was born. With our knowledge of the future, of the atrocities that Hitler would carry out, uh, 
I believe that most of us would conclude that we would be morally justified in taking the life of Hitler as a child. God would also be morally justified in taking his life, and that's because we have knowledge of his future. Now, others at the time might have objected that the life of a child was taken, and that's always immoral. However, they would not have the insight that we have today, and thus would not be able to accurately comment on the morality of the issue. So, if, if it is the case that you agree that someone would be morally justified in taking baby Hitler's life, and you should know I'm imagining him with the mustache as a baby, but uh, then it seems, it, seems, <laughs> it seems like we're only arguing over semantics at that point, right? We're only arguing over numbers. If it is the case that it can be morally justified for someone to take the life of a child, then what wrong does God do in taking the lives of other children? Moreover, I believe it to be the case that when children die before an unknown age where they are morally culpable, they do enter into eternity with heaven. And I think there's a, 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 an okay defense of this. Scripture's not entirely clear, but it does show the possibility. It does reveal a God who has a deep, deep care for children. Amen. If this is the case, then these children are only trans transferred from a world where they might be sacrificed where they might spend time in a temple as uh, forced prostitutes into eternity with him. Transferred from one life to another through death, but that's not the end for their soul. They're transferred from the evil of this world into glory with God. And if that is the case, I ask you, what wrong does God do in making that transfer prior to their adult years? I think the answer is uh, quite clearly none. Now, there's one question that many ask. Uh, they ask, does this justify future forms of violence, right? Uh, could I use these types of biblical texts to go and kill children today? You know, I have a bad day at work, and uh, I'm reading the wrong part of the Bible that day. Uh, can, could I kill children? I, I don't think that's the case, but uh, we'll look at the argument. Uh, there was a woman in Waco, Texas, who suffered from severe postpartum depression and schizophrenia, who, under what she thought was divine direction, uh, severed the arms from her 11-month-year-old daughter. When she called the police, she was incredibly calm in an odd way. She was in a rocking chair when the police showed up, and she was listening to, to a hymn. Uh, you know, there's a hymn playing in the background. If you listen to the 911 tape, you can hear the hymn. And uh, I, I'm almost certain that the hymn is, He Touched Me. And uh, honestly, no one likes that hymn, so it's not a huge deal that she ruined it. Uh, but the skeptic's argument is that if we accept that God commanded the devotional killing of children at one point, then we have to accept the possibility that he did it at another, and that this woman's act, rather than a result of her mental illness, was a great showing of faith. The issue here is that the two types of killings are not the same thing. This woman in Waco killed her child in an effort, in a very incredibly misguided effort to show devotion to a God. That's not what happened under the ban. Rather, it was God taking what was owed to him. It was God taking what was already his. Uh, this woman's action was incredibly voluntary. Uh, instead, the action taken by Israel and the action taken against those in Canaan was involuntary. They did not have a choice in this action. I, I don't think it's the same thing at all, and it would not be justified. But we still need to consider the possibility that 
all life belongs to God. This is a tough thing to swallow, oftentimes to hear that your life is not your own. Uh, you do not have possession of your life. Uh, rather, God is the foundation of all life. The creator is the foundation for the created, and we are the created. We have been given our lives, but they are not ours. In, in any moment, God could take our lives, and he would be justified in doing just that. Now, uh, concerning the woman in Waco, uh, we, can, we can quite clearly conclude that the possibility of God commanding someone to sacrifice their child today would be outside the scope of his character as revealed in the Bible. And multiple times throughout the Old Testament, we have God condemning the act of child sacrifice, showing that his character would never allow it, even today. Now, with that said, I want to go back to this, uh, this issue of moral intuition. Uh, the grounds for rejecting the factual nature of these texts is that they don't line up with our own moral intuitions. But I'd like to submit to you that oftentimes man's own intuition is incorrect. Consider that it was the intuition of the majority of Americans at one point that slavery be a legally endorsed institution. The intuitions of man are ever-changing. They aren't solid. They're changing based on our own emotions. They sway from day to day. We should not find our foundation for our own morality and our own intuitions because those are fleeting. Rather, we should put our faith in the one who is unchanging so that we can have a firm footing and a firm understanding of what action should and should not be taken. Now, you might be asking yourself, uh, how, how could we possibly find the gospel in all this? You know, we read a whole bunch of texts about killing people and killing children. You know, that was exciting, but where's the gospel? Uh, the strategy of the new atheists uh, has not so much been to concern themselves with tight logical arguments. Rather, it's been to compartmentalize certain attributes of God or certain things the Bible reveals. They want us to look at individual things rather than the whole picture. Uh, consider the image of a parent who's only shown punishing their children. When we only see that image, uh, that person appears to be a monster. But when we have that image coupled with the rest of the picture that they're loving that child and continually providing for that child, then we have a better understanding of what's happening. When the entire image of God as revealed in the Bible is shown, what we see is a God who suffers alongside his people. We see a God who cares deeply for the well-being of his people, who does not wish to see them suffer from their own, their own lust towards sin. Rather, he wishes to see them break from that bondage so that they can prosper. He wishes to see them uh, end the sin in their lives so that they can begin to fellowship with him. The greatest place where we see this is in the man, Jesus Christ. This man lived a sinless life, but still took the punishment that was due to each and every one of us. Rather than a God sitting from afar, judging and punishing sin, who can't relate, instead we have a God who has experienced that same punishment. In the physical form, he experienced that punishment on the cross in what might be the worst form of torture that this world has ever seen. Moreover, he took on the spiritual torment that is due to each and every one of us. Not only do we deserve that physical torment, we deserve a sense of abandonment. Because we are in active rebellion against God, uh, there's no reason why he should fellowship with us. We deserve to be abandoned. Now, Christ 
took that on. He took on that punishment so that we could avoid it. Rather than a God who only wants to punish sin, we have a God who offers a pardon. We have a God who wants to see us come back to him. We have a God who has created a path for all of us who find our lives in sin, which is each and every one of us, to come back to him so that we might spend life with him in eternity. Now this is not to say, this is not to say, uh, I do want to be clear that the punishment does not play an integral role in the gospel. Often we hear a gospel preached uh, where there's no rejection of sin. Uh, we don't see a God who punishes sin in these gospels. And th- th- these are gospels that cry peace when there is none. Instead what we have is a uh, man who's in active rebellion against God continually rebelling. You know, we might say, I haven't murdered anyone, but I I don't think that's really a relevant concern because if you've done it in your mind, the only issue is that you've lacked opportunity, uh, so you've still done the same thing. We do good things periodically, but that doesn't make us good people. Uh, The fact that we've done something good just means that we happen to agree with God at one point, not that we submit and obey to his will. Now, we can only truly understand the offer that's given to us uh, in light of the punishment of sin that is due to us. One commentator puts it like this. He says uh, that God will execute wrath on the unrepentant and unbelieving is just as much a feature of the gospel as that he will bestow all blessings of salvation and eternal life on them that believe. If there is no punishment of sin, I ask you, what are we being saved from other than our own devices? If there is no punishment of sin, if if we can live in sin and nothing will happen, then why is it that Christ had to take on the punishment of sin for the world? You know, at at times when we struggle with this image of God as revealed in the Bible, uh, an appropriate response begins with humility. Uh, Rather than asking God why, I don't understand this, uh, so I, I, won't, I won't deal with it. Uh, instead, we need to consider that our own intuitions might be missing the mark. I heard it said like this, that when we find something in the Bible that we can't wrap our heads around, rather than asking God, why would you do that? We need to ask, what is it about me that makes me uncomfortable with what God has done? What is it about my will that makes me unable to comprehend the will of God and sets me in conflict with the will of God. Rather than staying in conflict with this will, it's at these times that we need to humbly look these attributes square in the face and swallow the fact that God knows much more than us, that God's will is perfect, and that sin is not something to be trifled with, and that God's will is not to be opposed. Rather than being in conflict with these things, it would be much better for us to humble ourselves and get in line with the will of God and ask God to align our wills with his so that we might want what he wants and so that we might desire what he desires. We have a creator who's not willing to compromise on issues of sin. We have a creator who will, in the end, punish all sin that isn't pardoned. He's offered us uh, a way out, uh, in a sense of pardon, in which 
that sin could be punished through another. Now, I'm not going to ask anyone to raise their hands. Uh, if you want to come forward to talk to a pastor, uh, they'll be available afterwards, so feel free. But, but I do want to ask you a question. Are you comfortable with a God who punishes sin? If your answer to that question is no, I, I want to submit to you the possibility that it could be the case that you have not reconciled your sin with that God. It could be the case that you are hiding portions of your own sin, and so you are comfortable in that sin and uncomfortable with that sin being punished because your will does not hate sin in the same sense that God does. Because God loves you, he wants to see you leave that sin. Now, don't get me wrong, God loves you just as you are, and the gospel is a gospel of love. However, it is not one of complete acceptance. Rather, God wants to see you come to him so that you might move beyond where you are. And because of his desire for that, he sent his own son to die to take that punishment. So if you go ahead and bow your heads, I'd like, I'd like us all to say a prayer together. Uh, so if you would repeat after me. Father, I, I recognize that I'm in sin. Father, I recognize that my life is not perfect. I desire to be in fellowship with you. Because you have sent your son to pay for my sin, so that if I might believe, I can then enter into eternity with you. I believe in the work that your son did on the cross. And God, I pray that you would continue to guide me closer to you. Amen. Now, this is a tough question. Uh, this isn't something that saying a prayer uh, really, really does. It requires a change in the heart and uh, should be stirring in your mind. So I, I encourage you, if this was the first time you've said that prayer, to talk to someone. If you have questions, ask them. Uh, there are people who are equipped to answer them throughout this church body. Thank you. I think we got a preacher on our hands. I don't know. Let me piggyback on some of the words Creighton concluded with. If you, if you prayed that prayer and you meant it with your heart, you're starting a new life, a new life with the help of God, and you are saved. It's only an initial step, however, and there are other steps. You know, the Bible talks about being born again. And just like a, a baby, when they're born, they don't know how to walk, but ultimately they learn how to walk and they toddle. We call them toddlers because they toddle all over the place. If you've prayed a prayer to accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, let us help you. Let us help steady you in the next steps that are ahead. And that would be our delight. You just need to come and talk to me or any of pastors and board.
But Creighton, thank you for bringing the word to us today. Didn't you appreciate that? Really, really great stuff. Pray for, pray for Creighton. He is, um, he has resumes out and he's just praying about God's will for his life. And um, this will just always be one of your home stops. I want you to know that. God grafted you in and you are part of the DNA at La Palma. No matter where God plants you, I, I want, that's how I feel. I, I feel that you'll always be connected to the Bland family, in fact. And so um, we want to, we want to send you and we want to bless you. And we want to pray with you and for you and just be a part of, of your life. Amen. In fact, I, I, Pastor Dave, what, Creighton, come here and let me get my pastors and elders. Let's pray for Creighton today. He's just weeks away from graduating. He's, he's got resumes out and, and some people are calling him, I, I believe. And he, he doesn't know exactly, you know, what, what he's going to do and where God's going to lead him. But uh, anybody else that would just like to come and pray with Creighton, I'll invite you to come as well. But I want everybody to stand. We're just going to anoint Creighton today. Creighton, just lift your hands up and just... Father, we just thank you, Lord, that you guide us and you direct us. Your word is very clear that the steps of a good man, the steps of a righteous man are ordered of the Lord and that you delight in their way. And so, God, we know that you are already working things out and that where you place him, God, you'll smile on that. And I believe Creighton will thrive there. I pray, Lord, for the gifting and the talent that you have put in him. May it, may it rise fully to the surface, God. May there be such a strong anointing on him, God, that as he opens your word, you would show him and give him insight, give him wisdom, give him knowledge, God, and creativity, Lord, and how he can effectively communicate your love and your gospel. We pray your blessing and your favor. Somebody say favor. Amen. We pray your blessing and your favor on Creighton in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. What a great day in God's house today. How many have enjoyed being in the presence of God and in the house of God and the people of God? Amen. Well, you are dismissed now in the name of the Lord. Go with God. Be blessed and be a blessing.